everyone and welcome to the History Hotline, the hottest line for all things Black History and beyond. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 47 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lincook and I'm your host today as always. If you are new to the podcast, then welcome. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you enjoy your stay. And if you have been here before and been listening, thank you so much for your support and for continuing to come back week in, week out to listen to me talk about all things Black History. Now, it's Black History Month. Hooray! I think. You know, Black History Month is a really weird time, um, mostly because I'm, like, working on empty, um, because... For the mainstream anyway, people like to push Black History and Black History Month. Obviously, it's very easy to market it at this time, which means for the sake of the podcast, you want to try and like push it because people are quite open and receptive to hearing about Black History. So in terms of growing this podcast um, and the work I do, it's kind of a time to like put yourself out there. But that also means that, you know, all the companies and people that might want to hire you to do things for them, they're all asking in October as well. And it can lead to a lot of burnout. Um, so we're trying to avoid that, of course. But at the same time, I think it's important when we get this opportunity to have, I think, you know, the public in its majority looking at those that share black history, that talk about black culture, um, and do this kind of work in, in black spaces, it's important to, I think, capitalise on the opportunity, shall we say. And so, you know, I thought I'd put together a programme of the four Mondays in October to give you some discourse, not about people or events in history as I normally do, but to talk about the way that we, and by we I mean the British public, think and feel about history um, obviously black history, but how that mixes in with British history or it doesn't. How, you know, we remember people over events, how we memorialise those people or those events. And so today we're going to be thinking about statues. And I wanted to start with statues, partly because I've wanted to do an episode on statues since Edward Colson's statue came down. And the podcast didn't exist fully then, I don't think. That was in the summer of 2020 and this podcast started in August um, a little bit after I think it was a few weeks after but I've wanted to talk about statues not Edward Colston because I think enough's been said about that but statues more generally and how they relate to British history and public history and how we as a public kind of think and feel about statues and so you know this Black History Month I found quite extraordinary that it started with Wales, first of all, um, and, you know, their unveiling of the statue of Betty Campbell, who was the first black head teacher in Wales, um, in Cardiff specifically. And within that, Wales have also made a pledge or have passed into law the fact that they will now be teaching um, black, Asian and histories of, you know, ethnic minorities on their curriculum, and that will be mandatory. So that was the kind of news that I felt broke this Black History Month. It, it launched it off, and it was quite a positive two positive pieces of information coming from Wales, which is fantastic. I mean, I don't know if England will ever follow suit, um, not so much in the statue front, but in terms of the curriculum, although we've spoken a little bit about that on this podcast in the past. So thinking about the statues more so than the curriculum um, and the fact that the statue of Betty Campbell has been unveiled as a launch of Black History Month 2020, 
I thought was quite important and a reason for us to speak and think about what this means, what it means for statues more broadly, um, with the kind of felling of statues that we've seen in the past. Cecil Rhodes has come down in a number of cities. Confederate statues have come down in American states and Edward Colston came down in Bristol last year. So thinking about these things, thinking about calls for other statues to come down, different statues to be erected. You know, what's all the fuss about statues? What do statues mean? Um, and that's what we're going to be thinking about today. So Betty Campbell, as I've mentioned, was from Wales. She was born in Cardiff in 1934 to a Jamaican father and a mother who was Welsh and Barbadian. Um, and yep, you can spot by that date, 1934 is definitely pre-Windrush. There was a community of um, black people in Cardiff coming from a migration during World War One. Um, after the war, we spoke about the uh, riots in 1919, um, but there was a big like seafaring community um, in Cardiff in a place called Tiger Bay specifically. Um, and that's where Betty Campbell was from. Um, her father was actually a merchant seaman. And unfortunately, he was killed during World War Two uh, when the Germans torpedoed his boat. Um, Betty had actually been evacuated to the countryside, um, you know, as part of that um government like initiative to obviously keep the you know, the next generation safe from the big cities where it was more likely that the Germans would drop bombs um, and so when her father died um, and her mother obviously found out she called for Betty um, to come back home and they kind of decided well you know if we are to die we'll die together um, and so she was back home in Cardiff with her mother um, obviously now recently having been dealing with the loss of her father so at 11 years old um near the end of of the war 1945 um betty you know begins secondary school um and i think the secondary school she goes to from my research is kind of the reason for her kind of life trajectory into becoming a head teacher in the end even if it was maybe a potentially negative experience not to put words into her mouth or to tell her story inaccurately um, but some of the things she endured there and the comments that were made I think shaped her resilience shall we say to do all the things she went on to do. Aged 11 Betty got a scholarship for Lady Margaret's High School for Girls and there, it was there she decided that she wanted to be a teacher, but was told, and I quote, Oh my dear, the problems would be insurmountable if you as a black woman became a teacher. Um, the school was kind of filled with white middle class teachers and children, um, and it made her probably stand out, maybe, I'm thinking, um, because, you know, she was one of the few black people. Um, and also having been told that, you know, it would be too difficult for her to become a head teacher or a teacher um, would have made her more determined, it has been said, because I guess if everybody or pe when people don't think you can do something, I think sometimes it drives you to to really want to prove them wrong and do it anyway. Um, and she saw a need uh, for more black teachers. I am assuming she didn't have one because when she ended up going to teach a training college in 1960, she was one of nine women and they were the first cohort of women to go to teacher training um, college at the time. And she was the only black woman. So not only was she the first black head teacher in Wales, she was probably one of the first black teachers to be trained in Wales. Um, I'm not sure if that means that there were no black people uh, that were coming in from, you know, the Caribbean 
at that time um, as part of the Windrush generation because this is 1960 now. Um, Betty Campbell was married and had children. Um, I think she had three sons and one daughter. Her daughter spoke at the unveiling of her statue um, earlier this week. Uh, if you are listening in October, that is October 2021. Um, and so... Yeah, in that time, she kind of started a family and then went into teaching at a little bit of a later stage as opposed to kind of going through it like, um, you know, straight after school, A-levels or the equivalent and then and teach training college and so on and so forth. And so her training, having already had and started a family and going through that journey, as tough as that would have been, I think her children seen that actually inspired them and her daughter um, recently retired as a primary school head teacher, and her granddaughter, so her daughter's daughter, is currently a deputy head teacher. Um, I think in London somewhere, and so this kind of legacy of teaching, it really was strong in that family of educating people, um, and it shows that as difficult a job Betty Campbell might have had being a teacher, I think being a teacher any anyway is a difficult job, let alone being one of the only black teachers or being a black teacher, even when there's lots of black teachers, it's still hard. The fact that she was still able to kind of inspire her daughter and her granddaughter to go into the same profession and to carry on this legacy of work, I think there's quite a beauty in that. And, you know, they were there to see this statue unveiled of her. Now, Betty Campbell unfortunately passed away in 2017, but the campaign for this statue and the kind of signing off of it happened before she passed away, making her the first living black person, the first black living person, sorry, and the first black woman to have a statue of herself in Wales because obviously she was alive at the time of it being signed off. She passed away before it was unveiled and kind of created. Um, however, it's quite interesting that these histories uh, that are being memorialised by statues are somewhat re more recent than when we think about, say, a statue of Edward Colston that went up in the 1800s and is from a man that lived in, like, you know, the 18th century and the like late 1700s. So I think it says a lot about how recent these histories actually are. Now, thinking about statues more broadly, there are 950 statues in the UK, I think, of people, and 16 of them are of black individuals, not black women, not black men, black people altogether. So 16 out of 950. So as you can imagine, the fact that, you know, there is this now a statue of Betty Campbell is quite a big deal. And I think it's a bigger deal than people realise because we see statues all the time. But do we ever think about who those statues are of, when they lived, what they did? Um, and oftentimes, you know, people, people's families that have and in, have inherited the wealth of that person that is notable or significant want to memorialise that person and do so with statues. Statues are expensive. You can't simply one day decide to erect a statue. You have to run probably a public campaign. You might have to fundraise. You need planning permission. You need space to put the statue. You need a sculptor or artist to design the statue. You need the raw materials for the statue, depending on the size of it. And, you know, most statues, if they're in a public place, they can't be small because they need to be seen. Um, and so... It's an expensive business, these statues. Um, and for the most part, a lot of these, and I'll be very blunt with it, old white men that benefited off the exploitation of black and brown people historically, they put money aside so that they would be memorialised. You know, uh, Cecil Rhodes, one of them, his statue is everywhere. And by everywhere, I, I mean globally. You know, one came down in South Africa. There are statues of him. He named a country after him, Rhodesia. That was after him. 
he really wanted to memorialise himself. Churchill, um, obviously he's a prime minister, so it's a little bit of a different relationship when it comes to Britain and memorialising him as he is, you know, he's a prime minister, he's always going to be part of his history, um, whatever you think about him. But he also mentioned how he wanted history to remember him fondly and he knew that would be the case. And that is being chipped away at a little bit as we think about, you know, honestly and accurately look at him as a person and as a figure and some of the things that he said and did but these people were very aware of the power that they would have in the future um knowing that they would be memorialized um and remembered uh as well as they hoped in a positive light but you know now we are being a little bit more critical with the way we think about history in this country or some people are anyway not everybody um and that is obviously having an impact on their legacy now, it's the 34th year of Black History Month, and I think it's... I just find it fascinating that all that we've had all this drama with statues, especially Edward Colston's coming down, that we kind of launched it off with a statue of Betty Campbell. And there's so many debates around statues um, and whether, you know, they're important and what we need them for, um, and who should be memorialised into literally having a physical presence on our high streets, in our towns, in our uh, buildings, and you know, kind of have a physical space in society still, even though they are now dead. And I read an article by Gary Young, who has spoken a lot about statues um, throughout, you know, his his life and his work, and also more recently with the Edward Colson statue coming down. Um, and I wanted to share some of his arguments because I think they're very important. And this is not not at all to kind of challenge or suggest that Betty Campbell's statue shouldn't have gone up. Um, Gary Young, his kind of standpoint is somewhat against statues more broadly. Um, and I don't think I wholeheartedly agree with him. I think statues do have a place in society. Um, but he does raise some interesting arguments and I wanted to talk about them. And as I said, not to diminish uh, Betty Campbell's life's work. You know, she wasn't just a head teacher. She was on the UK government's race relations advisory board, introduced Black History Month into the curriculum. She's done so much work with local councils, campaigning throughout her life. Um, and so, in my opinion, if you're going to put a statue of someone up, it should be someone like Betty Campbell. Um, but will we feel the same way in like 50 years time, 100, 200 years time? I mean, I probably won't be here in 200 years time. I hope not. But will society feel the same way about statues then? Um, and so my question is, are statues for the now? And I think my answer is yes, because statues are... I think, for the society that is living in and around them, not necessarily for those people of the past, if that makes sense. I'm going to break that down and explain it a little bit better, um, so stick with me. So I wanted to start with a reminder that history is a living discipline. And you might be thinking, that doesn't make any sense because history is about the past. And if you're doing, you know, a longer history that's more far removed, you're really dealing with people that are long dead. But I disagree because the role of a historian, um, and I've said this before on this podcast, I can't remember what episode in, but it is to to tell history, but with a bias. And you might be thinking, oh, no, it's not. You're meant to be unbiased as a historian, but it's impossible. If I write history in 2021, I am going to hold the values of society today, if I agree with the values of society today, even if I'm writing about 1729 or 1995 you know we'll be biased by time let alone our own lived experiences our gender our race our religion our ethnicity 
all of those things are going to impact how we think about history. And so with statues, I think it's very important to understand that whilst a statue might have been erected, say, in, you know, the 1800s, that meant that at that time in the 1800s, people thought that this person should be memorialised and celebrated in statue form. It doesn't necessarily mean we have to agree with that now because society has moved on so much since 1800. And, you know, the same could be said with a smaller time gap. So this issue around statues and the debate around public art and memorialisation, I think it should be engaged with more. We had the Edward Colston statue coming down and that was after a long campaign of people actually having conversations and debates about wanting this statue to come down and some people obviously wanting it to keep be kept up even if it signified a very negative point of history and highlights kind of how insidious slavery was and we're kind of celebrating a man that profited off this now I think personally this conversation is very necessary and you might be thinking oh there's more to discuss as opposed to just statues but when we're thinking about public history um, and you know public opinion on historical figures and how we remember I think it's important to have these not these conversations and I want to get straight when someone says or thinks or has the opinion that a statue should come down it doesn't necessarily mean that they don't ever want to speak about this history all it means is that they want it and most of the time you know when we think about Colston people actually wanted that history to be taught properly and accurately a history of colonialism a history of the horrors of what people that colonized Africa the Caribbean Asia and all these other regions in the world what that actually meant for people and how violent that was and so most people that want to remove a statue are not trying to erase history they actually want it to be spoken about more honestly and have a public discourse and I think when a statue comes down very publicly we do allow for a public discourse and I'm not here to advocate for anybody pulling down statues or you know damaging public property um I might get arrested um and I don't necessarily think that's true anyway or should be done um but that statement and the kind of symbolism of seeing that statue fall and it's the same feeling I had when um in 2015 um activist Brie uh, Newsom Bass she climbed up in North Carolina in Charlottesville up a flagpole and took down a confederate statue during a protest and it's that same feeling of we are making a stand and of course a flag is easy to put up as opposed to a statue but then again in Durham North Carolina 2017 um a statue of confederate soldiers came down as well in a protest um and since then some statues have been ordered to be removed and some have more have been you know kicked down and knocked down and these conversations tend to happen when we have an instance of police brutality that takes another black life um and murders another black man or woman um but i think it's really important to you know, understand the significance of statues coming down um, and also statues going up. It's a two-way street um, and it can be a complete, like, revolving door of statues coming up and down because surely as society we are growing, we are changing, we are adapting to what we now hold to be important or moral or of value and I don't think it's a necessarily people erasing history and it's definitely not people erasing history because me personally, having studied history for so long... There are very, very, very few instances where statues have provided me with any historical knowledge. All they do is 
feed into this great man theory of history. And the great man theory is from comes from like Thomas Carlyle. It's like a 19th century idea. And I quote, the history of the world is but the biography of great men. Um, and it's this idea that, you know, individuals are the most important and significant part of history hence why we have statues of people and not necessarily events now i think monuments of events that recognize a group of people or a, you know an event that took place like the little blue plaques that we see which of course some are just for individuals to say oh so and so lived here but a lot of the time they are for events as well um and so this great man theory of history it really just pushes narrative that people are the most important part and it it's history from the top and history from the top is where we think about the big names we think about politicians we think about monarchy if we're looking back where you know monarchy had sovereignty over the whole country um and i think statues show history being important for the contribution of one person um and i don't really like that i don't really like looking at history from the perspective of contribution anyway from any individual let alone so much where we have to you know mount them on a pedestal um i think history from below for me is the type of history i prefer i like looking at movements i look like looking at groups of people more widely as opposed to you know just an individual um, when we all know that individuals don't work on their own, nothing happens in a vacuum. There is not one person in history that marched on their own or walked on their own or gave a speech to an empty crowd. Do you know what I mean? It all relies on other people putting pressure on the government, for example, if that's what we're fighting for. Or it takes other people fighting the war with them or it takes other people marching with them to make a stand. You know, if Martin Luther King marched on his own all the time, would he have had the impact that he did? Absolutely not. Um, and a great example of this that Gary Young pulls up is the Rosa Parks example. Now, Rosa Parks sat down on the bus uh, in a space that was should have been reserved for white people. And when asked to move, she said no. Now, she wasn't just an old lady, tired, coming home from work, couldn't be bothered to get up. She'd done this before. She was a rebel. She was standing for a point of, I don't believe in segregation and I am not going to move when asked. So this kind of idea that, oh, she didn't really do anything, we shouldn't really be remembering her in the way we do, is a load of nonsense to start. But... When we think about the story of Rosa Parks, do we ever think about all the other individuals that said no before her? Claudette Colvin is a name we know now. But what about the people that we don't know? I'm sure there were so many other men and women across the southern states of America that were like, no, I'm not getting up. And were thrown into prison or, you know, were beaten up or taken away or lost their jobs for making that same stand. Now, Obviously, it helps a movement to have someone to stand behind. And I think that is testament to the success of the civil rights movement at that time in changing law. And I will leave it there. Um, but also, when we think about the story of Rosa Parks, do we think about all the people that were actually impacted by that boycott? All the black people that had to carpool, which isn't that big of a deal, maybe. But all the black people that had to walk miles after a long day labouring or being a maid, or working in a factory home because they couldn't get on the buses because they were making that political statement and stand, who sacrificed maybe time at home, their own kind of physical well-being. They would have been exhausted. But we don't necessarily think about them and their work. I think the only time we think about a collective effort of people is during the war, which is very important, and I'm glad we do, but in movements of people to challenge a government, to challenge injustice, 
it's always more than just one person. It's the people that marched with Martin Luther King when he did his march on Washington or marched at Selma or went to the rallies, you know? It's not ever just the person and obviously it's important to recognise people and they are very important in history because they have also sacrificed so much and oftentimes more than maybe the average person that goes to a march. But it's still very important, I think, to think about all those faceless people, shall we say, um, when it comes to memorialising people and thinking about history anyway. And I will leave you with a quote from Gary Young that just stood out so much to me because it's so important that we think about it in the context of Betty Campbell's statue being erected, in the context of statues coming down. And the quote says, Statues always tell us more about the values of the period when they were put up than about the story or the person they depicted. I'm going to give you that one again. Statues always tell us more about the values of the period when they were put up than about the story or the person they depicted. Now, before Martin Luther King's death, two years before, there was a poll and the majority of Americans viewed him unfavourably to the point of hating him. Four decades later, Obama unveiled a statue um, in memorial of his life in Washington, D.C., 91% of Americans approved. So that was 40 years difference. It doesn't change what Martin Luther King did because he did nothing else in those 40 years because he was dead. It just shows a change in public opinion. And I hope that this decade where we're thinking about black history, I think a lot more critically and evaluating it a lot more and being more inclusive of diverse histories in our thoughts. All right, I hope we are anyway. During this time, maybe that's when we will see all these statues being erected of black and brown people. And that's not to say I think that's the only thing that should be done or could be done. But when we look back maybe 40 years into the future, when we've we've gone through this moment um, and we're thinking about other things or, you know, there's a different social justice movement that's more prominent, how will we feel about those statues then? Are statues erected with eternity in mind or are they just for the moment? Hope you all have a wonderful week and I can't wait to share more about, you know, black history in public knowledge and public discourse. Have a great week and I'll see you soon. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the History Hotline. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend to tell a friend. To continue the conversation about black history, head over to our social media platforms at the History Hotline on Instagram and at the History HL on Twitter.